Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. On this episode, I am joined by Chef Rico Torres, who is one of the co-executive chefs and co-founders of Mixedly, which is a Mexican-styled restaurant in San Antonio, Texas. It's not traditional Mexican in the sense that it's tacos or guac or anything like that, like people are probably used to. This cuisine that he does, him and his partner Diego, who are the co-founders of the business, they do really, really, really deep dives into Mexican cuisine as a whole. We're talking Mayans and Aztecs and stuff like that. And then they build menus around that style of cuisine from that time period. So the only person we've really encountered otherwise who has done something similar like this was Matt Spinner when he was at Bar Oni. Before it was Bar Oni, it was Ushabu, and he was doing Japanese menus built around kind of a, a certain city or region during a certain time period, like a year, like 1967 Osaka or something like that. And this is kind of similar, but it's way more in depth and they do a lot more research. And Rico is on the board of the local library there. So he does a bunch of research. They have a bunch of different books from just history. They have pages that you can view online and all this stuff. And so it's really fascinating how unique and how deep they go into the past in order to create their menus. And this restaurant was on the top of our list to eat at when we were kind of doing a trip through Texas. March. I've kind of referenced it a few times uh, with some of the guests that we've had on the podcast, but we just weren't able to eat at Mitchley because they were not open on a Sunday. And that's when we were going through San Antonio and we weren't in San Antonio very long. So unfortunately we missed out on that. I will have the opportunity to eat there uh, at the end of January. I'm super excited. I can't tell you how excited I am just to try what they're doing and see it all firsthand because it's just amazing. So this episode gives all the backstory and how the restaurant came to be, uh, how Rico and Diego came to be partners. You know, they first opened in like a box car and then moved to a bigger space and what they're doing now, plans for the future. Also a bunch of charitable organizations that he's involved with. Hopefully after I eat there firsthand in January, um, we'll be able to get Diego on the podcast and it'll be kind of the other side of the ownership duo here and kind of complete the story of the restaurant, you know, get Diego's perspective on a lot of stuff too as well. I think that'd be a really cool kind of bookend for this whole experience. So you can follow Rico on Instagram at Rico underscore Torres. You can also follow the restaurant. They have two different accounts. There's at Mixly Cloud, as we get into Mixly means cloud, it's M-I-X-T-L-I-C-L-O-U-D. It's all one word. They also have another account, the bar at Mixly, which is kind of just for, you know, their bar and they post stuff there too as well. So you want to follow all those. And you can also follow Diego too. His account is at the Diego show. He's the other owner of Mixly. So like I said, hoping to have him on sometime in kind of early 2023. You could follow us on Instagram too, at SpoonMob. We're on Twitter, Facebook, all that other stuff, either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1, but mainly use the Instagram. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. We got a bunch of different pages up for all of our guests. Food photos are there, um, information on what restaurant that they're working at, if anything major has happened in their career since they've been on the podcast. We write that up in there too as well, so you guys can kind of get some live-by-live updates as to things progress. So they open new restaurants or new stuff's announced or what have you, or if they change restaurants too as well. And then also links to all their individual episodes are up there too as well. And there's also a master page, but there's also a contact portal on the website. So feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback. If you ever have a question you want to ask a chef, sommelier, restaurant owner, write that in. It'll come to us and then we'll incorporate it in the best episode with the upcoming guest, the one that kind of fits the best with and matches up the best. So 
Uh, make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on all the platforms. Uh, you can find us on YouTube as well. The episodes come out there a week after they hit all the podcast apps. Make sure to follow and subscribe just because all the episodes come out Thursday at 1 a.m. So it'll drop right in your feed. But this month we've been releasing episodes on Tuesdays as well. So that way you don't miss out on anything. But without any further delays, here is my conversation with Chef Rico Torres, the executive chef and co-owner, co-founder of Mixley in San Antonio, Texas. Well, thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast here. Take some time out of what I assume is possibly a, a day off for you here with the holiday uh, looming right around the corner. You guys are doing something super interesting there at Mixly, something that just isn't really seen across kind of the industry. I don't think I've only ever encountered one other person who's done something similar. He was doing some stuff with Japanese cuisine and going by different years and, you know, 1965 and Osaka and stuff like that for a time period, which is a little similar to what you guys are doing with um, your restaurant and your menus, which I want to get into all that stuff. But I always like to start at the beginning of their career. You know, how did you first get involved with cooking? Because I mean, originally you're from El Paso, right? Yeah, but there's cooking in El Paso too. So <laughs> I wanted to be in the film industry. I didn't want to be a chef. I wasn't one of my aspirations. I was an artist at heart, loved painting and, and anything that expressed in that way. As I took on PA roles or internship roles in production and, and commercials, because some of that stuff actually did happen for me. I, I worked on for almost a year as a um, intern. I remember them telling me that the only people that actually come here to intern are people that have to because they're getting their degrees. I was still in high school. But they let me do linear editing and take out the, I would ride with them in the vans to do uh, live shoots and set up the cameras and run the third camera in the during the news hour. That was a lot of fun for me. But all the while, as I was getting older and growing up and going to school, I needed a job and it always ended up being in a restaurant, not a very good server. So I naturally landed up in the line. It just kind of hit the ground running from there. As an artist, I like to look back at it now and say that this is why that happened. But as an artist, I was wanting to change as many things as I could constantly. And that included the plates that I was serving at the restaurants. And so I believe I was fired from just about every single job I've ever had. That I think has more also in my DNA because my whole family is a family of entrepreneurs. So my dad, my brothers, I just knew that I couldn't work for anybody else. Late 2002, I met a chef that was working with me at, um, at Macaroni Grill and he had a catering company on the side and I was interested in that job. I told him if he'd teach me that I'd go and, and show up and he could count on me. And almost six months later, he was ready to leave. His only client was Merrill Lynch. We would do lunches. But I understood that there was a business there that I could handle on my own. I bought the equipment from him. I took over the Merrill Lynch account with very little uh, culinary experience under my belt. And I would just say yes. I would say yes to any request they had and take a deposit and hit the ground running and try to learn YouTube, uh, Food Network, anything that I could find in and around 2003 books. Every day was learning for me. I ended up doing my own culinary training that way by myself. I ran Rico Caters for 10 years. You know, we had different roadies is what I would call them because there were people that would come and pick up equipment, go and set it up. And then I would show up and do my thing and then they would break it down. And on the best occasions, they'd clean everything up and I did less. But we only we would only focus on trying to do high-end uh, caterings and just the best that we could do. So it was never the $7 barbecue plate or enchilada plate for the quinceanera. You know, one of the lessons that my dad had always taught me was to make sure that I was charging correctly for the product that I was selling, not to skimp on anything, you know, save a penny, lose a dollar. That <laughs> stuff always stuck with me. And so that's how we ran the business, high quality, high service, and we charged 
what was a fair rate, you know, it wasn't definitely the cheapest. It wasn't the quinceanera prices that, that I was getting calls for sometimes. Towards the end of that, I was getting a little bit bored. I was I've been working by myself for quite a long time. I didn't know a lot of chefs. My wife uh, just had a, our baby, Kingston, and she had taken a, uh, a maternity leave. And so when it was time for her to go back to work, I felt that it was a good time for me to take a paternity leave. So I needed a break. And around that time, I had been doing some pop-up dinners with some guys around town that just cooks that wanted to do something cool on Sundays and wanted to have their own dinners and express their own recipes at their own. At, well, basically, we ended up doing pop-ups for about a year. And because I had so much logistical uh, experience with my catering and I had a lot of plates and stuff like that, I naturally came in and uh, took a position and would find his venues and uh, do rentals and make connections around town. Uh, that's where I met my partner, Diego Galicia. He was working at Taco Cabana as a corporate chef at that time. And I know he really hated it. I think it sucked his creativity. And so, you know, he'd be calling me at all hours while I was working during my day. But he and I really ended up bonding together. And little by little kind of felt like we had, we're outgrowing the group. And so after about a year, we left the group. Uh, Texas Cooks Co-op is what it was called. I think we did ended up doing about 13 dinners. We decided to take the show on the road. We did our home pop-up to make some profit. And then right after that, the idea was born that, hey, let's open a restaurant together. Diego had already been thinking of the name Mishli, which means cloud. Clouds to me were very significant in my own life. I remember having a whole album book of pictures of clouds I had taken over my whole life. And so I just felt like this is something that resonates with me and speaks to speaking to me in, in a way that, that I feel like I want to make this move and take this leap. I guess it took about six to eight months. I uh, started finishing up the last of my catering commitments, uh, started selling off equipment. We started collecting money and we found a train car in a shopping center. And uh, this train car was the right amount of rent for us. It was tiny. We knew that we would do a restaurant where we would throw a lot of rules. And essentially, this is a restaurant that was going to have one table, 12 people, fixed menu, and a uh, pre-purchased reservation. Nothing like that was being done in San Antonio. And on top of that, we were saying that we were now the experts in Mexican cuisine, which we weren't, but <laughs> we were going to be. And we wanted to just draw the line in the sand and say, this abbreviated Tex-Mex is bullshit. And this is what we want to showcase. And I want to say this bullshit because you will find me eating bean and cheese tacos, you know, at two in the morning somewhere. It serves its purpose, but doesn't serve a purpose when it tries to disguise itself as Mexican gastronomy. And it robs from the history of uh, the creators of many Mexican recipes, influences, ingredients that, I mean, just so much went into what Mexican gastronomy is today. And I think Tex-Mex tries to consolidate that and sell it a cheap version and definitely was an offensive way. Now it's turned into very commercial, agreeable type of cuisine. That's fine, but that's not what we do. And so opening Michli and telling the history of Mexico by talking about its gastronomy and digging into those stories and, you know, tugging on a thread and unraveling the whole fabric of how human existence is so connected. And a lot of that story happens in this part of the world. Uh, over the last 600 years, including the last leg of human globalization, you know, when the Spanish find a route from Acapulco to the Philippines over the Pacific Ocean, the Torno Viaje, the six-month journey, that is the last leg of globalization. The world that's now at that point is truly round. And the trading that is happening, not only in ideas and cultures, uh, people moving and, and ingredients moving, finding new homes in different parts of the world, 
Sri Lankan cinnamon in Mexico, uh, cacao all over the world. It's just incredible how that happened. So all of that was very fascinating to me. And so our first night of dinner at Mishli was baptism by fire. I think that's the the first, the, I think that's a great name for the first chapter of that book. It was a CIA Latin advisory team, and it included Rick Bayless and Maricel Parecia, who had just put a book out herself on cacao, uh, Roberto Santibanez, who had restaurants in D.C., Fernando Salazar, who is the food and wine director of Wyndham Hotels. And then, of course, the president of the CIA, Elizabeth Johnson, who was also teaching Latin studies there. And it's just like, dang, there's about 100 years of ex combined experience here. And here's these two assholes serving up the worst tortillas, the worst cacao. We did make it all from scratch, but it was terrible. Moles that I had never tasted before that I was trying to figure out. True form about how I like to do things on my own and by myself. Learning to make moles became, and to nixtamalize was a process that I had to learn on my own. There was a lot of times where we just couldn't go to Mexico, or I couldn't taste these ingredients, or I couldn't taste these preparations the way that they were intended. I had to deconstruct it and figure out the ingredients on their own, and then understand those ingredients themselves. And then once you understand what they want from each other and who they want to hang out with, then you start to see combinations. And for me, seeing ingredients and flavors has always been like seeing colors. And so I can, you know, look at something and say, oh, yes, uh, fennel likes to hang out with lemon. Our cinnamon loves clove. Pepper loves cumin, stuff like that. That's how I created a, a lot of what I did. And later, as we started building up money for the company, we could travel, um, I got to taste these things and I found out that a lot of times it was not off the mark and sometimes even a little bit better because those techniques that I would take away that I knew that I didn't want to do. For example, I don't like to fry my salsas. I know it has a beautiful extra layer, but I prefer not to. I prefer to roast everything. I love the feeling. I don't like the feeling of being weighed down when something has been fried. Also, I don't like to use uh, animal products as much as possible in any of my sauces or moles. So we use a lot of very beautiful vegetable stocks that... We try to coax so that all the veggies really come out. And when you're having these moles, and you know, mole itself is not a sauce, it's it's a whole inspiration. You're experiencing this array and spectrum of flavors from the corn husk to the toasted nuts and, and seeds and the, the way that the herbs were toasted and the way that the tomatoes were roasted or if the garlic was roasted completely and it's nice and sweet and lost all its astringency. Same with the onion. It has that beautiful char and bitterness combined with the sweetness of the white onion. So that was the goal. You know, those are things that I think we accomplished. And Diego and I found a unique balance in that very yin and yang, very much um, two horses pulling in different directions. He was very good at visualizing beautiful plates. I was very good at bringing, combining flavors and making those plates work. And same in business, you know, sometimes he pulls forward and I need to pull back. And sometimes I need to be pulled up and sometimes he needs to pull back. One of the funnest questions we always get as business partners is, well, how do you guys decide who's boss? Well, the baby is the boss and the baby is Michelin. It always boils down to what does the baby need? Does the baby need for us to make an investment, to take out this money, to hire an employee, to get rid of an employee, uh, to take this leap or to just wait? It doesn't matter if we agree. What does the baby need? That's the deal breaker, right? That's the tie. That's the, that's what really makes the rules there for us. You know, fast forward about five years later, man, it's, it's a long journey after that. So we got put in one best in chef. We have got the restaurant started getting a lot of accolades. Uh, we were a small team for a while. We didn't have any investors. So we built up the business on our own uh, to a point that we could borrow enough to make a bigger growth. And now 
and we are in our bigger home in Southtown. Uh, we survived the pandemic. We made sure our staff was always taken care of. We pivoted every time we had to, whether it was making coffee and selling uh, branded Michelin coffee with uh, coffees as a roaster that, and then using that money to buy food boxes during the pandemic to selling gift cards and taco kits to doing smaller dinners. And it was just always a pivot because we're survivors. We're sharks. We keep moving. We keep moving because that's all you have to do. Like Diego and I are two types of individuals that just want to do cool stuff, don't like to settle for, for mediocre. We know that if we need it or we want it, we have to go get it. I've always been able to count on him for that. Same with me. So we love that partnership going on nine years. Uh, so now we're in the new restaurant. We started off with a team of about 16, almost 95% women running the show there. Uh, Chef Alexana moved with us from the smaller Michelin and took over the kitchen. And I was essentially kicked out of the kitchen. Uh, I still jump in for new menus. I work with them closely when it comes to building flavors and the things that I'm very good at. And then I step away. A little bit of me found that hard in the beginning because I had always controlled my own stuff. And now I have a lot of younger people that sometimes know more than I do. And I have to play real cool, you know, because uh, I don't want to show them that my ego got hurt. But at the same time, I'm really proud that I have people that are smarter and more talented than me because that's going to make us all more successful. And so when I step out of the kitchen, because now they want to do the chef role, just like I did 20 years ago, I'm in the front of the house now with a new challenge. And my focus is deeper into the research. And I use my relationship at UTSA there. I'm going to sit on the board for the advisory council of the special collections department for the library. They have a collection of Mexican cookbooks that is over 2000 volumes and dates back to 1777, handwritten manuscripts and menus, and then into cookbooks, uh, first print, rare prints, all of Diana Kennedy's uh, journals, all her books, all her notes are at the library as well now. It's been an interesting ride doing that. So I do that. I focus on wine and I focus on talking to guests and telling stories and uh, buying new tennis shoes every month because I, I need them for work. You were pursuing a career in kind of film and TV, like you mentioned, and interning at a news station. Where did you want to go with that? Like, did you want to be writing movies or directing TV shows? Or what did you kind of envision? I wasn't too sure what the final job was, but I knew that it wasn't to be an actor. I, did, I knew I wanted to be in the limelight. I knew that I wanted to have creative control. It probably wouldn't have been a good fit for me. It was something that I was very interested in. And I hung out with people that were doing it with other producers that were a little bit more successful, you find that type of talent around you and you try to surround yourself with those people and figure out how you're going to get into this business. I was always working too, working and cooking for me was another expression of art. So it just came easily. What's really interesting and the way that life works is that aside from all of that not happening, it happened anyways. During Rico Caters, I was already in front of cameras, doing interviews, uh, finding myself in newsrooms, finding myself on set, and doing all the things that I wanted to do anyways. And uh, it's a hard job. It's a super hard job. I see it. You know, it could be eight, nine, ten hours of, of filming for about a five-minute shoot. And uh, a lot of setup and a lot of everything. As we keep moving forward, I mean, we've, I've been on camera so much that I ask for what I want in uh, shoot itself. Like, hey, maybe you should have the camera over here catching this. Or here, come check that. Or before this interview, maybe you should fix your hair. I've had to tell somebody that. a little embarrassed about it, but... I know that she didn't want to be on camera and it was 110 outside and her hair just like kind of melted to her face. And I was like, hey, but I found my own confidence in saying those things out loud without trying to be rude, I hope. 
it really speaks to what I wanted to do originally. Is this career has taken me in so many different directions and cooking has been just like, it's not even the most important thing that's come out of it. The relationships that we make from the restaurants, the travel, the experiences, the, the learning that I had just in this year alone. These are things that, like my dad said, they don't teach you this stuff in business school. One of my big jobs now is definitely being a good mentor, sometimes a counselor, sometimes just a, a neat, uh, somebody that, that can listen. And it's interesting because I am always reminded of that phrase that says, people lean is hard. There's so many people that have their things going on with them, and I have to be a stone in all of that current of water. Learning to live like that has been my new challenge. And now looking forward, I think I'm ready for a book or something. I need a new challenge. Family meal in the restaurant is a time when we take a break from the day, and along with all the people that you're with, you sit down and just take a break, a moment a respite and you just kind of bonding because you're both relaxing, enjoying food, you're breaking bread, you know, and that's a very moving experience in the kitchen. And so I wanted to translate that into something that we could do to give back to the community. And really Family Meal started was just meeting friends at, at these food and wine festivals, finding out that these cool chefs that I was really getting along with were also from El Paso. And I said, we have something here. Let's get together. Let's go back home. Let's cook over open fires. Let's find a place that has views of the mountains and give the money to charity. Use our clout and experience and talent to, to do something good for our community. And so the first Family Meal, we donated to Annunciation House, which took care of uh, migrants that were detained by ICE. And so after ICE releases them, they just release them onto the street. You don't know what to do. You don't know where you're going to stay, where your meal's gonna, next meal is going to come from. And Annunciation House is there to pick them up, give them a place to stay, give them information on their next leg of their journey, sometimes a ride, you know, just something that you need for a couple of days to, to get your bearings and then be on your way again. It's a huge, huge deal that, that they do that. And then the second family meal was at the garrison because it doesn't just have to be in El Paso since El Paso is everywhere. And then the third one was back in El Paso. And from the last two, the one in Austin and the one that we just did, the money is now going to uh, El Paso Inspiring Hunger Food Bank. That one for me was special because I know that a lot of food banks, especially in bigger cities, are definitely government funded and their communities are big and the need is great. But I feel that the one in El Paso, which serves three different regions or that whole borderplex region, including Juarez, New Mexico, El Paso, uh, and covers 10,000 miles I had to triple fact check that with uh, the president, the CEO herself, Ms. Susan, because it just seems like a lot of area, but they cover that much and they're feeding people and creating programs of all kinds for, for some really destitute people that need it. Uh, when I went, I remember it was like two miles of cars just in line. You know, they just have a huge need over there and we wanted to be a part of that. And I felt that in the spirit that they give food to families, it was in the same spirit as family meal as we're doing now. And so that's why we aligned with it. It also becomes a thing for El Paso chefs as well. I noticed this hunger that, hey, man, we don't have any kind of cool pop-ups here. There's you know, not enough cool events are happening here. Not enough culinary attention is happening here. To bring back people that grew up there and become successful in the country is really amazing. Top Chef winner Gabe Adales was there. Andre Natara, who is a podcast host and author of Chef's PSA and on his third book since he retired from cooking and just a whole bunch of really great people that came out, including chefs in El Paso that, that just came out to support and help and lend a hand. There was about 30 people in the kitchen and the dining room, just lend a hand. And it's just amazing how that went down. And as tough as that one is to put on as many times as I say, like, this is the last one. We've seen this need to do it again, a ways to do it easier, but better. And then when it's all over, I find myself like just almost sad and a little bit bored that I didn't have that challenge on me anymore. And I'm like, oh man, you're getting addicted to this kind of stuff. Like, 
that's what's been happening here in San Antonio. So how did you originally wind up in San Antonio? Because you're doing the film stuff, you're cooking in restaurants, kind of bouncing back and forth, you know, between the two. But it seems like naturally the next step would be to move to LA, but you wound up in San Antonio. Yeah, that didn't feel right for me. Right after high school, I went to Phoenix and I was there for about eight months. And that was not a good fit for me at all. I couldn't find any culture there that I wanted. And so I had a lot of friends that were already in San Antonio. And I just made a decision that I'm going to move to San Antonio. And I had never even been here before. And as soon as I got here, it was right. I had all the vibes of back home in a bigger city and close to a lot of other cities. LA wasn't the right move for me. I knew that I'd get lost in the sauce over there. It just... I was really immature very at, at that age and I had very unconfident and there was just I had a lot of growing up I needed to do around that time. I even met my wife around that time and I told her like hey I'm not really ready for you. And so we dated for a few weeks and then kind of decided to split ways for a while. After that I went through a pretty bad relationship. Basically I went through training and when I got out of that we met up again and I said okay I'm ready. I'm ready. I knew she was an awesome woman. And I wanted to be with her, but I knew that I was definitely going to mess that up. So at least I was smart enough to say, I'm not ready for this. And then I went and got ready and came back. And next week, we'll be married 14 years. We didn't get married right away. It was like still another year or two. But uh, yeah, I knew that I found the right one after that. You know, you take over the catering company. Did you ever at any point think about going to culinary school? Like when you decided, you know, you were going to go all in kind of with being a professional chef and anything, or was that just not something you had an interest in? Yes, I considered it, but I just kept finding it that I was already learning it. And if I didn't know it, I'd find a way. If I didn't know, it's because I didn't know it existed. And so I'd find a way to figure it out. We had our first couple of meetings with the guys in the co-op. A lot of them had already staged in Michelin star restaurants in the country and were very familiar with what fine dining was. And I remember hearing the first time the word Vitamix and I'm like, what the hell is that? But true form, I took a mental note and as soon as I got a chance, I looked it up on my own. And now Vitamix is my favorite toy in the kitchen. Come to find out my dad had one and he's had his since 1995 and it's still kicking butt. Uh, he's only had it refurbished once. A lot of little things like that happened I wouldn't know the name or the technique a lot at that time around El Bui and cooking like that. And so that was something that was just completely novel to me. Uh, Puyol was something that I was so enthralled with, but I couldn't wrap my head around it. And now it's like, oh, yeah, you make a mole, you make a little infladita, you do the beans like this. And now it's just everyday life of what we do. No, I guess not. I didn't. And if anybody listening is considering culinary school, I think it's better to get that education in the kitchen. And if you want a degree, get a degree that might actually further your life as a business, as an entrepreneur altogether. So for example, outside of chef life, you know, we're always looking at investments and always looking with an eye to the future. How am I going to be able to do less and have a lot more money in my pocket year after year? And as I get older, of course, retirement and those kinds of things, how do I make sure that these things are secured? Uh, again, my partner, Diego, says the best chef is the one that's paying his bills. And that's something that we're very focused on is making sure that all of that stuff is squared away and that there's profit. Otherwise, when we still work, this is what we're doing it for. The goal is to make money and to find ways to do that and, and treat the business as a company. And because, you know, we have a lot of really wonderful employees that might not just be good at cooking or bartending. Maybe they're very good at also real estate management or other things that could happen in a company that makes everybody just that much more successful. And so I like to 
train every one of them in that fashion of thinking about like, you know, think outside of what we're doing here and how else can you be better? Just as a whole life artist as, you know, creating the successes that you want to see for yourself. When you're running the catering company, what was the most difficult part, the biggest challenge? Was it, you know, marketing and getting new clients? Was it just time management and figuring out how to be, you know, super efficient? No, I was never late. Not going to One time I didn't have enough food. That was a really hard one. Uh, but I had a very good relationship at Kraft and it was for 300 people. It was Thanksgiving. I only had about enough for 180. But because I had developed a good business relationship, again, another lesson from my dad, they just said, hey, come back tomorrow and finish it. And so I worked for 24 hours straight and I made sure I came back and the lunch was even better than the day before. And uh, I got everybody fed, including some extras. And they were very happy and I got paid, but it was a very embarrassing, hard time, something difficult to deal with. The most challenging part of catering was doing a catering in a house that was half a million, a million dollars, seeing some very wealthy people, and then getting into my Chevy van with no windows and driving back to the hood uh, where I lived. Where I used to live, uh, people would park their cars on the lawn and the dogs lived in the front. People would ask you if you had a if you had a roach around six in the morning, and maybe want to trade you an old gold watch for whatever a, a bowl <laughs> or a beer. That was okay then. But going back to that, after having been in really great places, was very hard for me. I knew I wanted more than that, and then I knew that I was better than where I was, and so it just felt like I, w- I couldn't wait. I just wanted to jump out of my skin and be ten years down the road. But it also takes every day a new decision. Which path are you going to take at every chance that you get to make a choice? And that's really what it was. One choice, one step at a time. I'm still getting there. Still want more, you know, and we have a lot. I'm very happy and I'm very blessed. It's taken a lot of work, but it's always on the line and it always needs a lot of attention. You know, there's still want more sometimes. That was the most challenging part, but also the most rewarding in the way that it pushed you. Do you remember the moment, time period when you wanted to stop working for others and wanted to be your own boss? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I was done at Macaroni Grill. That was it. When I saw that opportunity, I had had a phone call. Uh, I had a conversation with a friend of mine. She said, you should cook food from your house and sell it to people, like to-go boxes, something like that, uh, meal kits. And that kind of resonated with me. And again, it's this thing that when if something resonates with you and makes you feel like you're about to be challenged, but it's a it's it's a leap that you think you're going to survive, like you have a 99% chance to survive or 90% chance of surviving it. These are like defining moments that and you should really pay attention to those. And so it was something that, that struck a chord with me. And I said, that's right. I could do this. And I could use what I've learned to, you know, the little knowledge I had about running a business for my family and my artistry to create and just trying to have these relationships with people. I think that's going to be enough. That was like a start for me. It was a seed. That led into me meeting uh, Chef Richard Palomo, who said, hey, guy, you want to work for me? And I said, yep, let's do it. Let's go. I'll work for free if you want me to. Of course, he paid me, but I wanted to learn because I knew that I was about to find my way out of that area. I didn't want to be on the line and I wasn't happy there. And it's kind of sad sometimes to see some friends that are still there and it's been over 20 years. Man, that's that's tough. That, that, that never changed for you. That was a defining moment for me. It was a macaroni grill. It was when I found that phone call combined with that opportunity that Chef Richard Palomo, who was on the line at the time, I was catering on the side, said, come on. It was a completely different change for me. I learned everything and hit the ground running. 
So then after that, you know, like you mentioned, you wind up meeting Diego. You guys are kind of both doing some pop-ups and stuff like that and then kind of decide to open a restaurant together. How difficult is it to get funding to open a restaurant? You know, because I talked to Jorge Guzman and he said it's even more challenging when you're somebody with Mexican heritage just because the banks look at you basically different. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. There was no opportunity from the banks. Absolutely none. I scraped together what I had savings. So did Diego. We borrowed, I think we borrowed like 8000 from our parents, from his parents, maybe from mine. In all in all, we had about 15000 to get started. And then I sold my van and we ended up with twenty five to open up the restaurant. And it was all out of our pockets. And one of the things that was a little bit, I guess, kind of insulting shortly after that was a client of mine from Merrill Lynch who always felt like he had like if it wasn't expensive it wasn't good and so that's fine like he you know he had his certain taste but it was after we opened that he offered me ten thousand to buy in you know but he wanted to change some things and that was a defining moment for us as well because we decided then and there that no we're never going to play with anybody else and we can't have anybody else trying to have their hands in our pockets and trying to tell us how to do what we want to do the mission of Mishli. And the creativity of Michelle stays strictly between Diego and I. And now Chef Alex comes into it as well because she plays a, such a huge role. Uh, she's our partner in a lot of ways, but we've babied it for such a long time that it's just ours. I don't care how much money you have. If you want to invest in the restaurant, it's one thing, but all the say of creativity stays with us. That was something that we were going to stick to our guns to ever since. I politely told him, thank you, but no. And uh, we just went on our way and struggled. In true business fashion, you know, sometimes in order to make that two-year mark where a lot of businesses fail, it means that your paychecks are very small. And so it was a very poor couple of years for me. Luckily, my wife still had her job. And so we had income, but it was still kind of rough. Once we started overcoming those challenges, little by little, we would build up the business and the numbers which prove that. And the same way that, you know, we took, we were able to take care of ourselves and improve the quality of the life of our employees and little by little, put it back into the restaurant, into the baby, make it look nicer and add to it and always better and better. That's a huge thing in business. You should always reinvest into the company to make it as successful as it can be and be ready to pivot. When you guys first open, you mentioned, you know, you're in a converted box car, essentially. Looking back on it, do you think that if you guys had a more traditional first restaurant space that things wouldn't have evolved as they did? Like there's a lot of great restaurants that have come from weird kind of spaces. Like being in a box car is weird. There's been people that have started their restaurant out of a garage, stuff like that. And then they go on to be this great, you know, world-renowned restaurant. I don't know what would have been different. I know this though. Michely was small enough that we could curate and micromanage all aspects of it. Where a bigger restaurant like we have now, there's a lot of moving parts and I have to have a lot of uh, qualified, trusted people handling certain situations from the dishwasher to the bartender uh, to our pastry team. Everybody's got a role that is theirs and I can't cover all of it. You know, long story short, my wife is now our coordinator and our HR and our payroll, that which has melt my brain, but she does it so effortlessly and, and seamlessly. And I'm very pleased for that. And so that's also been a part of it, learning to let go a little bit. But uh, in the beginning, building the stage, building the dream and the cloud really involved a lot of small details that Diego and I had to micromanage from the color of the utensils to how dishes were coming out to what kind of products we were buying. I think that was a big part of our success. In a way, when we opened up Michelin, a lot of it was that we curate an experience for you that funnels you to this 
great night but no matter what you choose if you do get to choose anything you're not going to make any mistakes the guest is always going to be happy towards the end is the goal because we've curated it such that's why we have the tasting menus and not the bigger spot with our wine pairings or our wine selections or the specialty cocktails or an add-on all of that is curated we only serve cafe de olla at the restaurant now the reason behind that is that and you can't get a cappuccino or a latte because after 10 course dinner the last thing you want to do is put some warm frothy milk on top of that and then go home with an achy stomach and that is your experience of having died at Michelin. Oh, my stomach hurts. Well, that wasn't my fault. You wanted a latte. But so no, like no, you can't have that. We don't serve it. I'll have some alternative milks for the cafe de olla if you absolutely have to have it, but it's already done in a way that hopefully you don't need anything else. Then it comes with some beautiful pastries and those are always changing. This whole experience on its own just to have coffee service. But little things like that I think have been a big key to our success, being able to dial in where we want to and closing off avenues for different choices. So you just can't come in, customer's always right situation and order whatever you want. Like you're going to have all of this and the way that we want you to have it and you're going to have a great time. And you guys change the menu, it's every 45 days, right? No, that was something that just kept getting circulated. In the beginning it was a little bit it was about 3 to 4 months, but now it's a strict 3 months. Yeah, the 45 days thing just always got picked up incorrectly and then we just get circulated from one store to another and so no, it's 3 months. We change the menu, four menus a year. Right now we are in Puebla. Uh the next menu is going to feature El Norte, so we'll cover an area from Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León. The cloud just keeps moving, sometimes from one region to a state or sometimes back in time. About three menus back, we did the Porfiriato, which was a menu that covered the 30-year dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz and at a time when Mexico was heavily influenced by what was happening in London and Belgium and specifically Paris. And so uh, Porfirio being a Francophile himself and aristocrats wanted to remove themselves from anything that they considered to be indigenous, including maize and chiles and beans. The food at that time was heavily inspired by French and Italian chefs. So when you guys change the menu, you're moving around to different states of Mexico, but you're also moving to different time periods too, right? How do you kind of get inspired? Or do you just kind of start doing some research and then, you know, you find a time period or something like that that intrigues you and inspires you? It's not just, yeah, we're going to move through these 32 states of Mexico. It's also, like you just mentioned, different time periods where it's this one state, but it's also this dictatorship that stretched this number of years. And then your next menu could be modern day Mexico City. Well, it's gotten a little bit easier every year as far as uh plating and figuring out menus. It's still a challenge and the biggest way we do it is uh, where have we been and then we eliminate then what's available, what's cool. Okay, these states, these areas. And then in that there's things that happen in its own timeline. Well, well this is a cool event that happened here or we can focus on this or we can add this to this part of the menu. But then of course we start looking into what's going to be available for us seasonality wise uh, for the next three or four months. That also has to play a role in it. Also the time of the year. If it was a, like a Baja style menu where it might have a lot more seafood, Veracruz or Yucatan, those don't make as much sense in the middle of the winter as they would closer to the warmer months. And vice versa, things like Puebla or, you know, Michoacan or other events, the menus that work better in, during the colder months. And so we take all of those things into factor, but we're always thinking about two or three menus at the same time, constantly, constantly messaging each other with ideas or something that we saw and just talking about a dish. And sometimes those dishes are in the back burner for a year before they come out. We did, La Con which was a menu that follows Hernán Cortés from his home in 
through the Caribbean onto the shores of Mexico and then onward and, and into the eventual fall of the of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec Empire. That was a menu that took almost two and a half years of research and discussion. It was a little bit more intense. But again, I mean, we were always looking for an angle to tell the story. So we don't want to just do a menu where it's like, oh, uh, Oaxaca is known for seven moles. We'll do seven moles. And they do in Oaxaca. What we do is find an angle on an ingredient and, and work it around that. So that's how a lot of the dishes are created. In the same way, a lot of the menus as well are looking for an angle that's completely different, that gets you thinking about Mexican history in a different way, in a different light, and then going in that direction. Have you guys repeated any states? We've done Oaxaca about three or four times. We've done Puebla, we've done it a couple of times. Yucatan, I think we've done a couple of times. So we've done those, but never the same menu. So does your process then start at the library or do you start on like Wikipedia to just get a feel for like that time period first before going super in-depth? Yeah, it starts with a lot of Google searches. So thank God for that. And then, yeah, onward to the library, but also the library is more and more being digitized. So there's more volumes that I can find. So I can email Stephanie, Steph Noel over there and be like, I'm looking for this kind of stuff. And they'll send me a long list of things to get started. And as I'm going through that, if I find something or I'm not finding something, then I might make a trip myself. And then on top of that, just looking for it wherever I can. If it's a phone call, if it's a trip, if it's YouTube videos, there's some little trinkets of information in between the lines of a lot of things. Audiobooks are a great one, but you have to be willing to put in the time for the research and sift through a lot of BS and then find this one line that is just pure gold. Uh, sometimes these travel videos that, that people do uh, on their own of places, in, especially the ones in Mexico, there's this like little trinket of information there. I mean, that's the gold mine. And then on top of that, the chefs are also doing the same thing. And so they'll come to the restaurant. Hey, chef, I read about this or I found that. I'm like, where did you find that? What kind of Google search are you doing? It's always great when they come in with something I've never even heard of and they're just excited about it. And that tells me like, you know, we're doing something that's not just cool food, but it's offering satisfaction to the people that work here, like to be satisfied and excited about a job that you're working on uh, or a project that you're working on. That's the goal, isn't it? Because otherwise it's just work. Did you guys ever do any research on like your family lineage or heritage or history or anything? Yeah, I haven't done like an ancestry.com or anything like that, but I've always been pretty familiar with mine. My great-great-grandfather is Lebanese immigrant that ended up in Mexico. On the other side of the family, Spanish and Estizo background. Uh, they grew up in Zacatecas. Um, I think one of my great-great-great-uncles was a prize bullfighter. I know the stories. There's nothing crazy exciting. I don't think I'm related to anybody. Diego, I think he said he's like 10 times removed or something like that. Somehow related to David Crockett somehow, some way. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. But yeah, yeah, we've, we've looked into our own histories and I haven't done Zacatecas on the menu yet, but that's coming up. I know that's, that's something that I need to pay homage to. But the Lebanese immigration story that was in my family on the other side of my mom's side, that is something that we've explored a lot. And little by little, it finds out more and more. Like, for example, Tacos al Pastor, our very Lebanese shawarma, shawarma with lamb, the Catholic church sin, and removes lamb and includes pork, but it's less expensive. But also, it's the church's way of saying this is how we separate ourselves from uh, Jewish and Muslim uh, religions because we're the Catholic church. And then, of course, in an area where you might not have all the spices that you want, you can still have chiles and achote and the pineapple and, you know, tacos al pastor become this beautiful thing. The flatbreads that are made of wheat turn into the corn tortilla. 
and you know now you have tacos al pastor the most quintessential taco in mexico probably and a, a taco that is ever evolving in its own way i'm assuming you get uh, most of your ingredients either local from the san antonio area or from mexico yes uh san antonio area as close as possible within farms range we work with a couple of different purveyors that themselves work with all the farms. And so I think like the furthest one has been somewhere out in Lubbock where we were sourcing some grass fed. But yeah, we try to stick with that. When we're making these dishes, the exact same recipe from Oaxaca might taste different in Texas as it's going to be over there because I'm not importing tomatoes and onions and garlic from Oaxaca to make it taste that way. That doesn't make any sense. So it tastes like the terroir here in a lot of ways. Of course, that is supplemented with things like dried chiles that I can only get from Oaxaca or cheeses or ants and insects or dried herbs. That stuff comes through another purveyor. These are the special things that we have at the restaurant, like the chile mije or the hoja de aguacate or the papalo. And just all kinds of cool stuff that we can get. Queso de bola from Chiapas is one of my favorites. It's just an amazing funky cheese in the shape of a ball. Double rinded. Awesome. Awesome cheese. Have there been any dishes or recipes that you guys kind of set out to start doing for a menu, but you couldn't find the necessary ingredients to fully execute it? Like you guys have done like some stuff that's like almost ancient, like different moles and stuff that just aren't even like around anymore. We couldn't find a goat cheese that we wanted for the chile nogada. We decided to scratch it. I can't think of anything right now, but there has been several dishes where it's just like, nah, it's not going to work out. We can't get this ingredient. Sometimes Oja Santa, especially in the beginning, Oja Santa was a very difficult thing to source. My friend Ellen Clark gave me uh, four plants. We dug them out of her backyard. I planted them in my house, and then I had to remove them and move them to our new house. They have supplemented the restaurant ever since, but only during the time that they're in season, and then they die during the winter. And so we harvest as much as we can towards the end, dry it, we'll have powders until there's no more, and then they start to regrow later in the summer. Some stuff like that. But well, finding Oja Santa around town has always been difficult until we started growing it for ourselves. No story sure, yes, there's always a challenge. Out of all the menus you guys have done so far, is there any one particular menu that you feel perfectly embodied, like the vision that you guys initially had for the restaurant? I think that the last four to five menus that we've done have been that. One right after the other is just getting better and better. And that has a lot to do with when the work is spread out evenly. It makes it easier to fully concentrate on a dish, on an ingredient, on a flavor, and, and put that attention that it needs to it. And then that coupled with the fact that the team has really started to find its stride. Even when a team member leaves and another one, a new one comes in, there's still this sense in that kitchen now of how things are supposed to be done and how they need to be done. And the team really revolves around that so that's a big effect of the team working really well together like i mentioned you guys have done kind of some ancient dishes and stuff like that where they're just not around anymore do you think more chefs should kind of embrace that style of cooking like going through history instead of constantly pushing the boundaries forward you still need to push things forward but also you don't want to forget where things came from it does help to have a sense of agency of how these recipes begin. More chefs needing to do it in their own restaurants, uh, just an appreciation for it, just a little bit more background into how and where these dishes are created. And that's really it. I think that any chef should be doing whatever makes sense to them and their kitchen. And that's what they should need to be cooking in their kitchens. What resonates with them and makes them go home feel like, dang, I put in a hard day's work, but I, I feel good. I feel good about it. And my customers felt good about it. If anything, I would say just a nod to more healthier techniques and options and ingredients with uh, more thought towards how does customer feel? How does the human body react when I cook this way as opposed to cooking 
in a way that was traditionally done, but and what I like to consider the way that my in-laws might used to cook. This mentality, let's use margarine, let's fry it, let's add a lot of flour and a lot of refined sugar, which is, let's say it out loud, it's worse than cocaine. <laughs> you know, trying to change out some ingredients with that, with a mindfulness for how can we live longer and happier and, and feel better when we leave the restaurants. Chefing is a game of endurance and humans are living longer. So drink until four in the morning and then smoking cigarettes and, you know, going back to work a few hours later. And hashtag chef life, that's just bullshit. You know, nobody's going to make it that way. That's not a model that I would want to follow. I love that young chefs don't want to follow that either. When you guys start kind of first getting some accolades, like 2017 Food and Wine Best New Chefs, which I think it was like the first time in 19 years that there had been anybody from San Antonio recognized by them. Then the following year, you guys get your first James Beard nominations and everything too. When all that stuff kind of starts happening, does it change things for you guys or does it just, you know, help boost the restaurant or? It definitely helped the business. Definitely. That kind of stuff always brings in more customers, which in turn helps us grow. And it's not just about growing financially. It's also if you're busy then you're constantly pushing yourself to do something better and different and smoother. And so you're growing in that sense as well. So yeah, this has definitely been a, a blessing to do that. On top of that, it's opened doors for us so that we have had the opportunity to meet very interesting people. And some of them have become very uh, strong relationships and friendships. It's become a very tight community. So I can travel to a food festival and usually we know somebody there or we know a lot of people there, you know, it's just this community. And the more you do well in your own restaurant, the more you have this feeling of like, I belong here among my peers. Uh, and that's, that's very rewarding on itself. At the end of the day, we don't chase these nominations or, or magazines or awards. It's how does my customer feel that night? And like I always tell my team, we're only as good as we were last night. Today's another day. We, we got to do it again. Uh, I'm always trying to push that on them that we can't rely on our laurels. We have to push ourselves every day. Customers sitting right there right now. So let's do our best. So it doesn't matter if President Barack Obama or a local Joe came to the restaurant, they would get the same experience, the best that we could give. Do they like tell you ahead of time when those like awards are coming or like if you're going to be in a magazine or something like that? Or is it just you guys find out through like word of mouth like, oh, hey, by the way. No, no. Food and Wine, they called and told us when they had made all the final selections, they called and told us like, hey, guys, we selected you for this. But they did it in a way that was kind of sneaky. So they scheduled a phone call with us because they wanted to talk about Mexican cuisine in South Texas. I was like, okay, cool. Uh, we'll talk to them. And then uh, they called like, just kidding. It's Nilu. And you guys are now 2017 Best New Chefs. That was kind of fun. Uh, the nominations for James Beard, those come out all together. So if you get nominated when they pick their semifinalists, that list gets announced all together, everybody. Usually those uh, Google uh, alerts will pop up or somebody will let you know, or we were already looking. But no, it's not. It's never been word of mouth too much. But you said you guys are in a new spot now, you know, bigger spot, more modern spot down in the, the Southtown area. Is there anything you miss about the, the original space, the boxcar? I miss that when it was smaller, it felt easier, I think. It was a little bit less challenging. That's just lazy me talking, right? No, I don't miss anything about it, man. It was a metal box that would get beat down by the sun for 90% of the year. And we couldn't have enough fans or ACs in there to keep it cool. We were very limited to the things that we could do. The team was much smaller. 
now every aspect of that business and every person there needed the business to grow in order for them to grow. And so I'm happy where we're at. I don't miss it. I do find it funny. Uh, we had a review last year and all the guy could talk about was how much you missed the train car. You missed this huge story of a small business, came up with no investors, survived the pandemic, took care of their employees and made sure their health benefits were always taken care of, that they had food on their tables, opened a business in the middle of all of that, and then came back with a team four times the size, not by choice. It's just that these were the best candidates that applied. You don't see a kitchen like that in San Antonio, or you don't really don't see kitchens like that. And I was very honored to have that. So I think he missed that whole story. Uh, he really just focused on the train car. I don't get it. That place was horrible. It gave us what we had, but man, it was, you know, it was like when I was living in the hood, I wanted to get out. I wanted to get better. And you guys moved in that new space, like during the pandemic, right? That was like 2020 when you guys made that move. Yeah. About 2020, we closed Michley in October that of that year in September, reopened in October as Kumo, which was a concept that we had had up the sleeve for a while because we still had the train car for another eight months. But mentally, we were checked out as Michelin. Out of the pandemic, we uh, cut that table for 12 into six tables of two and nailed them to the wall. Kumo Makase became a restaurant that it was very little uh, utensils. It was only one glass in the entire house. It was BYOB. And it was eight to nine courses. And the menu could change in the middle of service or it could change twice a night even. As we ran out of beets, we moved on to the broccolini or on to the next vegetable. Very vegetable forward to high level of creativity because it was always like, what do we do next with these ingredients? Okay, let's do this and that. And so that was fun. And then all the music was a little bit more casual as well. Rockin' Espanol, Queen and David Bowie and Rolling Stones, In Excess. So just, I got to have a lot of fun playing music that I wanted to hear, uh, Mana, stuff like that. And the guests loved it. It was just a fun, casual date night experience. You know, when we were done with that, we had to leave the train, but really focus in the new spot. And that took almost a year of, I don't want to say babysitting, but it was a little bit of babysitting. Just making sure that we were there every day with the contractors, available to answer a question, pick up an ingredient, make a decision, make sure that somebody's there. So it was a lot of just being there, watching, moving. And then we opened up. Make it sound easy, but there was a lot of stuff in between there. Like you mentioned, you guys were doing, you know, coffee things and take-home kits and all this stuff to, you know, during the pandemic too. And then you're, you know, moving a restaurant, doing kind of a pop-up version too as well. So you were staying busy and obviously because you had to, but do you think you would have been able to do all that stuff without the pandemic? Pandemic overall is a bad thing. I think everybody agrees with that, but there are certain people got breaks for the first time in certain industries and stuff like that, you know, mental health and everything. So do you think there were some benefits for you guys with the pandemic or was it just super stressful all the time? I mean, there's always challenges. I don't, I don't find myself being in a stressful situation all the time. I find it's harder to operate that way. We learned a lot about ourselves. In that time, we did a lot of instructional videos and I did a lot of cooking classes online. So like, again, that was my previous desires and experiences kind of resurfacing again in my life. So there was a lot of cameras in the house sometimes and there was a lot of speaking to audiences, uh, a lot of podcasts. That was a fun time of learning that and at the same time, relearning what the consumer is now wanting. And that includes a lot of online stuff, our ordering, you know, I think the way that we shop and consume has changed. And so that was a time that we had to learn through that as well. Going through all of the paperwork and red tape to get assistance to help the restaurant survive also prepared me the when we finally took out our loan for a new spot because that included a lot of crazy paperwork. 
and by that point, I was at a point where I had everything filed away and ready to send out when needed, or I knew how to access it, or I knew what needed to be next. So in a way, that was another learning experience of navigating the red tape that it is to deal with the government and over alone and making sure that on the up and up with all your taxes, because it was just a very confusing year. There was a lot of times when we'd be on calls with other chefs, uh, these big old panels, and people were really trying to figure out what the PPP laws were about. And they're like, they give away this money, but they hadn't made any actual rules about it. It's like, well, we think that you can do this <laughs> with this and you'll be okay. But we don't know yet until Schumer says that it's okay. And so there's a lot of that. But I do remember when it all started happening, it was a time when I was just really mentally and physically exhausted. And I felt, isn't this crazy how I think the whole world needed a whole break? I don't know. It wasn't great for a lot of people. Uh, it was a tough time. You have to be able to grow through all of that, pivot and you know find the lessons that life was trying to give you at that time. Make the best of it. Be the best example that you can be for the people that don't understand it or that understand it less. So that was a time for us. I mean, like, you know, being a good example for my kids and stuff. During that time, we had this uh, closet under the stairs and I converted it into his little game room. And he was little enough to just do a lot of the pandemic. He loved that room. So we had to drag him out of there and say, get out of there, you vampire. How did you wind up on the board with the library? They started coming to the restaurant early on. That was something that I really wanted to be a part of. So I just maintained the relationships there. You know, because of what we were doing, it made a lot of sense for me to be a part of that anyways. And uh, little by little, I established myself as a person that really gave a fuck about the libraries and their mission uh, to preserve and, and to rescue these these uh, items and to have a place where anybody around the world could find them. And I thought that was in line with, you know, my sense of you know, researching and history. And so it just made a lot of sense. And I really like the people that I work with there. It wasn't a hard transition. I think you guys have uh, another trip that you're leading to Oaxaca this time. Was the previous time that you guys went, was that the Yucatan? Yeah. So Modern Adventures is a company that curates these incredible uh, destination experiences. And honestly, the first time they asked us, I wasn't really sure what my role was until we were there. And basically, it's to be the chefs on board with this culinary trip. You talk about it, you cook a couple of nights, and most of the time you're there just learning with the guests themselves and going through these markets and oh look this is this chile this is what we do with it blah 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 and the guests love that and so they've asked us to do it again and so we'll be in oaxaca you guys are coming up on your 10-year anniversary for the restaurant there's been a lot of famous restaurant duos over the years you can point to any of them the guys at 11 madison park or nobu whatever how have you and diego been able to continue to work together for this long and been successful with it a lot of humble pie is a big deal. Just like in any relationship, you got to know when to fight for something and when to ignore something. The desire, like I said, to to want more and not to settle for mediocrity. I guess in the way that his family dynamic is and mine is, we could have been brothers in another universe. But we almost are. We really are. Our lives are interconnected with the success of our relationship. In order to make things easy, the answer is, what does the baby need? So that's really the main thing that's made it uh, feasible to navigate all of that. But a lot of it is also personal growth, you know, learning how to be patient and learning how to talk to each other. He's, in a lot of ways, my other marriage. <laughs> so, uh, my wife knows that because that's the only phone call I'll answer if it's too early in the morning. You know, we just learn to live with each other and concentrate on the good things and not on the bad things and build on those things. What's next for you professionally? Like you mentioned earlier, you still do a lot of the menu development, all the research and everything, but you have someone else, you know, kind of leading the day-to-day -day operations of the kitchen. So 
and you've talked about, you know, other interests and sometimes getting a little bored and, and stuff like that. So what are you thinking? What's next? Another restaurant or, you know, moving into a different space or real estate or investment, or you mentioned kind of thinking about writing a book, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Definitely have a couple of concepts up the sleeve and we're looking for the right, we're ready to, we're ready to receive is the thing that we like to say, ready for the right opportunity. So we have a few concepts ready for that. We have we're always looking for the right investment and really enjoying what I've been doing in the last couple of years is uh, writing theses and, and, and doing presentations and doing master classes. And so that is really starting to to open up other doors for me that I'm enjoying. So I'm going to pursue that a while longer and see where, the, where that's going to take me. Like the educational side of things almost? The educational side, the research. Uh, we were in Lagos a few months ago, back in April. This email and, it, and right away, you know, oh, an email from Nigeria can't be legit. But it was legit. It was their uh, food and drink festival. And it's the biggest festival in the country. And so they invited us to do a masterclass. And so we did a masterclass on Mole Poblano, where we broke down the ingredients and traced them to their place of origin and told the story of how Mexican gastronomy is intertwined with the rest of the world. I mean, that kind of stuff is just, it's cool. We didn't even cook that weekend at all. It's fun to see how this industry can take you in so many different directions if you're ready for it. But that, of course, means that you got to be preparing for it all the time on your own time, looking at stuff while you're in the bathroom, whatever it means. Like You always have to be on and ready to learn it and looking for actively looking for stuff. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, uh, sushi chef Alex Harden of Atoko in Austin, Texas. She left behind a question for you. What are you doing to make the industry better? In my kitchen, we promote a strong sense of harmony and leadership. Sometimes you can only change what's around you. We'll focus on how we treat our employees, how we challenge them, what kind of opportunities we build for them, you know, mentoring them to get to that next level because we want these chefs to leave Michelin and it's like the chefs that leave any great restaurant, you know, the chefs that were at Noma, the chefs that were at French Laundry, they go on themselves to influence and interact with the wider industry. And it's the experiences that they gained being around us that they'll take with them and possibly either build on or even if I was a bad example at something, at least there's that, that they can say, this is how we're going to do it. That was a mistake back then. Even if it was well-intended, it was a mistake. And so we'll do it this way. But that's the biggest thing that we choose to do is to fight for, you know, in our own kitchen, like again, so many women working there, we, we take it seriously when we fight for their rights and to promote a work environment that is so far beyond just being a line cook that you get to just build a better place for them and that they can reciprocate that somewhere else and pay it forward is the goal. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? If you weren't a chef, what would you want to be doing? This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, do you believe that your city can become a food destination, a a tourist destination through food? Of course it can. It's in a way, it's slowly getting there. Uh, I think Austin has the jump on us. So many talented people from Austin coming into San Antonio now. I think that as strong as the culinary community is in San Antonio, we always need a little bit of new blood. I think that new blood either is going to excite you and you know push you to do something cool, or it's going to scare you a little bit that you might get kicked out of your own throne if you don't move your butt. 
in what, whichever way it came, I think that that was a helpful resolution. So it's possible, but I'm more interested in seeing El Paso become a culinary destination as well. And that is because there is such a unique vibrancy there of flavors, of recipes, of foods that you can't be anywhere else in Mexico or United States and get that and not say that's very specific to El Paso. This chile colorado, the chile rojo, this, uh, these dishes like this, the burrito. These are things that you find to be very much tied to that region. And I would like to see El Paso also come up. So yeah, any city can do it. San Antonio can definitely be there, but I'm very excited to see El Paso be there. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? I spent a lot of time in the kitchen by myself when I was uh, doing Rico Caters and I listened to a lot of uh, podcasts and a lot of audiobooks. And so I would say that Deepak Chopra was something that I listened to a lot. It had a huge influence in the way that I think about and approach things and constantly evaluating what I'm thinking about. And that has led me to a much higher version of myself than I envisioned even back then. Definitely not just in cooking, but in life and in business and in general, it was people like that helped me put into words what I was already thinking and feeling and striving to figure out about myself. And so having this higher sense of spirituality or this sense of self, that has helped me tremendously navigate all the challenges that, that I've faced. Turn has helped me help others understand, you know, something that they might be going through that when you break it down into certain ways, you can make some sense of it, out of it and start to take control from it. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Oh, the vacuum sealer. I love it. And the Vitamix. The Vitamix, the vacuum sealer are my two favorites, but it's the Vitamix. I don't have a vacuum sealer at home. So, <laughs> but I like that thing, man. You can proof your pasta really quick. You can pickle. You can reconstitute dry items, or you could just make storage life a lot simpler. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. So, you know, a person gets uh, stuck overnight at the airport, reach out to you. You know, you guys aren't open that night. Say, hey, you know, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. You know, I love Szechuan House. Incredible, incredible Chinese food. I mean, they even boast about how many different ingredients go into some of these items. And it's just super fun to watch and eat and, and yummy. A little too high in sodium for what my doctor recommended, but that's definitely can't miss on that one. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So any place that you have not visited yet, you still want to go to. And then also any restaurant you have not dined at, but you still want to eat at one day. I want to go to Noma and I want to go to Makai City or Alaska. I love the Pacific Northwest. I love pine trees and bears and orcas and mountains. But then I also love the glitz and glamour of the city and lights and money and fashion. So kind of stuck in between all of that. Yeah, I'm going to change my restaurant from Noma to California because I haven't been. And I, I would certainly want to go there before Noma. And that sounds crazy, but that's what my heart tells me. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? There was that one time that the woman threw up the micros and left them all over the bathroom. That was that was kind of funny, the micro cilantro. There was a, recently we had a couple of uh, super inebriated guests were complaining to the staff. And as soon as I would go over there and try to smooth things out with them, they were like, oh, everything's super cool, super cool. And then they just got up and left. We stopped them at the door because they hadn't finished paying their bill. And the lady got really upset that she had to pay and started digging through her purse. And as she's like pulling out credit cards, some of our utensils fell out. 
we got their money, you know, they got our utensils. They left, they called an hour later and said, I just want to tell you that this was one of the, you know, we're from Austin, bro. We know how to drop some coin. The food was terrible. The service was terrible. The experience was terrible. And in the background, his wife was like, fuck the service, fuck the service. Like, yeah, man, I just want to say, I mean, like the food was great. The service was impeccable, awesome experience, but it just wasn't for us, man. You know, we're from Austin. We know how to drop some coin, but it just wasn't for us. They're just super wishy-washy and right, we're just like, okay, got you. Sorry, it wasn't for you, sir. That was just like the funniest thing that's happened lately. Yeah, we've seen stuff, man. It's just it's roll with it. You know, we're in downtown too. We've had like a guy come in and try to take a shower in the bathroom. We've had just about everything stolen from the patio, so we have to bring everything in every night. All kinds of ridiculous stuff. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, candy, fast food, whatever that you know is not uh, the healthiest for you, but you just can't help yourself? Well, I'm not supposed to be drinking beers, but I really like them. You know, sometimes you just long for an IPA, (laughs) but they do a number on my body. Yeah, beer. But other than that, man, like I said, this is a game of endurance. So for the last half a decade, I've really focused on how I'm taking care of myself. And at this point, the worst thing I could do is maybe eat like a a stuffed crust slice of pizza situation. But I've been more in tune with how my body feels when I don't take care of it and when I do take care of it. And I'm always trying to lean towards the other. And so that's my boring, guilty pleasures there. You know, maybe a little whisper of cinnamon and some maple syrup in my coffee. I don't know. Favorite Instagram account that you follow? You know what's funny is the TSA account. TSA is always posting about things that people uh, try to sneak onto the plane, whether it's an animal or a weapon. And and then they have these long posts with full of puns. Glock this out, you know, and it's just like puns, puns, pun after pun for what they found. So that's a funny one. That one and the guys from uh, Chromio have a separate page where they just do airport fashion. And they travel a lot, so they take snap pictures of uh, people's crazy fashions. And that's also a fun one to watch. I don't know if it's, maybe this is my guilty pleasure. I haven't been able to unfollow five-minute crafts. Is that like one of those like DIY ones? Sort of DIY. And some of the five-minute crafts are just ridiculous. And the comments are insane. But I haven't been able to stop stop following it. Oh, shit, I can do that with a banana and and a toothpick. Like, yeah, so that happens. Some of them take days and all the comments like, I tried this, and it, but it took me six minutes. So it's just, that's a guilty pleasure one right there. Favorite dish thing you've ever cooked, created, you know, kind of looking back on your career, you could point to this as almost like your aha moment. You knew you could be a professional chef one day when this all came together. Year two of catering, my first prime rib roast barely understood what it meant and it cost me 200 bucks which is all the money i had and i had to make sure that that thing went perfectly that's when i knew that i could take on a big challenge and really good but i only had one to try and that experiment also had to be the final product again baptism by fire later on when i really learned uh mole negro some of these other more complex moles, that was a big aha moment for me as well. That was like, you know what? I've gotten to a point where I can understand what these ingredients want and need. And I think uh, I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to make it. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene still stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody else who's on TV, culinary personality, Emeril, Lagasse, Jacques Pepin, Guy Fieri, anybody like that who you kind of always gravitated towards? Bourdain with his suede boots, his long stance and his cigarettes. I always thought he was really cool. Those are the moments that stick out with me. I do remember that I think they were in Lebanon and getting shelled. And I think that was one that, that always resonated with me. Personality-wise, I always sometimes consider myself a Food Network baby because early on, that's really what I was inundated with. 
2000s. I learned a lot about Mediterranean and Italian through Mario Batali's from Molto Mario. And he would go like this. That's where I learned how to create flavors from the ground up and how to beautiful sauces in that way. And then also Jamie Oliver was always one of my favorites because I love this confidence that he brought to the recipes. It was just like, oh yeah, you just, just smash the bug and throw it in here. The lamb is going to be yummy. And, you know, it was always fun to watch. I was vibrant. There was a lot of colors. It was very interesting ingredients. It was a lot of confidence in that. And to me, that felt like art. And that translated for me a lot. The early Iron Chefs were also also played a big role. Watching Haruki Sakai and, and Marimoto, watching all of that was very interesting. I outgrew it, I felt, but those were personalities that I always felt that I really related to. Even, um, what is his name? David something. But he was doing a tour of Italy for a while. These experiences where you would get to see these villas, this sense of, look at how fun and beautiful food can be when it's just cheese and bread and a wine, maybe a little piece of simply prepared fish and vegetables. Those things always resonate with me. Jacques Pepin, in the last couple of years, I've had a little bit more interaction with them because we were focused in one of their books. Featured in one of their video books, Jacques Pepin sent stuff. Like he sent me a uh, little stack of drawings that he made. I guess sent it to all the chefs, but he had written it out to me. That was really nice. Anthony Bourdain moment I'm remembering now was a trip with his wife to province and they were just sitting out there on the villa. And I've always thought to myself, that's a place I would love to spend a month at. Uh, it was his wife's family's home and in the province of France and just just beautiful lavender wines, like cookings, eating outside. That's just something I always remember. And an episode that I, I, I watched from time to time. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. Instagram, Ricor underscore uh, Torres. That's my handle. I have a Facebook to check out my family. That's it. And the restaurant's on Instagram too. Mishli Cloud, M-I-X-T-L-I Cloud, and then all the other handles. And then the El Paso Family Meal stuff is really cool too. So that's El Paso underscore Family Meal. The bar has an account too. Bar at Mishli? The bar at Mishli. But all of that, you get to one, you'll go to all of them. And you guys are open... Yeah, Tuesday through Saturday, uh, bars open five to midnight without reservations. We do have some small bites there. And then the restaurant itself, um, tasting menu only. Right now we are offering a 10 and seven course, but next year I think we're considering an eight course with some add-ons. Just kind of because we see that this is what the market is kind of wanting right now, but staying in line with the goal of the restaurant. And uh, yeah, Tuesday through Saturday and the menu changes every three months. This was awesome. The stuff that you guys are doing at that restaurant is, like I said, there's nobody else who's doing stuff like that. It's super unique. It's super influential, super important just from maintaining techniques and, and recipes from years ago that could get lost, you know, if people don't continue to cook those or execute those and, and bring them kind of to the forefront and just how much research that you do on all these different, you know, regions and time periods to really get a feel for how food was then and, and how it kind of influenced or was influenced by all that other stuff going on too is it's just super unique and and I'm really excited to to finally be able to stop in at the end of January and try it firsthand because uh, we were pretty bummed to miss out on it the first time, but uh, really looking forward to it at the end of January to, to stop it in. Let me know when you're coming in so that we can make sure that we get you in there. Yeah. If you guys uh, need anything from us, feel free to you know reach out, let us know. Always want to support anybody who comes on the podcast as much as we can. Always an open invitation. If you guys ever need anything, new menus or doing some special event or something like that, you want to talk about it for 10, 15 minutes, always happy to help and, and support. You know, again, appreciate your time. Stay in touch. 
Hopefully see you soon. Enjoy the holiday weekend. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate it. Big thanks again to Rico for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his off time to come on, chat about his career, the whole story, you know, how he wound up becoming a chef and opening Mixley with Diego and, uh, you know, where they've been, where they're headed, future plans, all that stuff too as well. So again, you can follow him on Instagram at Rico underscore Torres, also the restaurant at Mixley Cloud, and then also the bar at Mixley. And you can also follow Diego at The Diego Show. Uh, it's his account too as well. So you can follow everybody. And then also, you know, there's CDC and, and everything. She's on Instagram too. I don't remember the account off the top of my head, but I think they've tagged her in a couple of posts. So if you go back through Mitchley Cloud's account, it should come up with her information too as well. But, uh, you can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're on all the other social medias too as well, but Instagram's the one that we primarily use. Check out the website, spoonmob.com, and make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. That is it for this episode and this week. New episodes scheduled for next week too as well. Appreciate everybody listening. Uh, if you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. Best thing you can do to continue to support us is keep listening, but also help spread the word. Word of mouth is kind of how we continue to grow. Uh, and it's awesome to see the podcast grow and, and everything uh, month over month. So, uh, you know, when you wind up at a restaurant or some place that we've, you know, had somebody on from the podcast, make sure to tell your hostess or your wait staff, hey, you know, super excited to to be here and try this firsthand. Heard, you know, great things about it uh, in the interview that, you know, whoever did on the Spoon Mob podcast. So that does more for us than any sort of advertising or anything could ever do because it lets people know that when they come on the podcast, you know, it does have a real impact and they can get new customers, new people into their restaurant or business for the first time that maybe they didn't hear about it otherwise, or maybe they were unsure of what exactly it was or why they should be, you know, eating there or visiting or whatever, kind of get the full story and all the context of why that place is special and why I and, and everybody else who helps with the podcast love it and uh, why we want it to be around for years and years to come because we want to enjoy it. And we think, you know, the, these people are super creative and super talented and you know, we want to make sure that their businesses thrive for years to come because, you know, everybody should be enjoying them. So that is it for this episode and this week. We will talk to you guys next week.